Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for this Sabbath day and that we can just worship together in freedom, in peace, in safety, and in comfort. Bless us, Lord, as we meditate upon spiritual themes. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would speak through me and speak through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the Seventh-day Adventist hymnal, one of my favorite hymns, if not my favorite hymn, um, not so much necessarily for the tune, but for the words. You know, sometimes there are certain hymns where the words just speak to you, and they're just profound. And the song that I like the most, I would say, is hymn number 606. We sung it this morning, I believe, during the song service before the, um, before the message this morning at 10 o'clock. And I love the words of that song. Very, very profound. It's one of those old hymns. It was actually written in 1812, um, part of the 1812 war, I believe, with America and Britain. And the words go like this. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever, twixt the darkness and the light. Very deep and meaningful words. The second verse reads, Then to side with truth is noble, when we share her wretched crust, ere her cause bring fame and profit, and tis prosperous to be just, then it is the brave man chooses, while the coward stands aside, till the multitude make virtue of the faith they had denied. Then going on, it says in verse 3, By the light of burning martyrs Christ, the I feed it, that, sorry, Christ, thy bleeding feet we track, toiling up new Calvaries ever with the cross that turns not back. New occasions teach new duties. Time makes ancient good uncouth. They must upward still and onward who would keep abreast of truth. And the fourth verse is my favorite. As I believe often is, you know, in, in the hymns, it kind of culminates in the fourth verse or the final verse. And the fourth verse reads, Though the cause of evil prosper, Yet his truth alone is strong. Does that not ring to our day today? Though her portion, whose portion? The portion of truth. Though the portion of truth is the scaffold. And as a songwriter is right in that imagery of the scaffold, what's he meaning when he's saying the scaffold? Not the scaffolding we put on the buildings as we're building new buildings today. That scaffold, the imagery, that word he's using there in that context, the scaffold there would be the scaffold that people would be hung on or the, or the, or the apparatus that people would be executed on in the past. Though her portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold, he says, sways the what? I love that imagery he writes there. He's saying that scaffold or where the burning martyrs, where they lived or where they died, that scaffold, it sways the future. Like we live today and the freedoms we have is because those who died or gave their life on the scaffold of the past. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. You know, sometimes we feel like we're going through that valley of that shadow of death, or we feel like we're going through that scaffold experience. We feel like we're going through this experience, and we cannot see where God is. The song says, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadows. There are times in our life where God is standing there very vividly, very present, almost like he's face to face with us, and yet there's other times when God is standing in the shadows. In the shadows. And it's at those times when he's standing in the shadows when we need to be encouraged and remember the times when he stood face to face. 
Both times he's there close, but it's not always that we can see him. And when, I think, when we think back to the lives of many of these reformers, there were times in their lives when they knew they were working on a divine mission. God was there with them. And there were other times when it would have felt like they were standing. And where's God? Where's God? He's in the shadows, but he's still keeping watch over his own. But the story of the reformers is not all a, 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 a rose-petaled story where they set about to be heroes. We remember them today as heroes. They get a, a chapter named after them in books. We remember them well, but I'm sure when they were actually living their life, they did not feel that they were so heroic. I mentioned this morning, you may have watched the video in, in like the Mayflower. When those people were coming across on the Mayflower, they weren't thinking, yeah, we're charting freedom, we're charting liberty, we're charting justice, we're going to lay the foundation to a great and great... No, no. They didn't feel like that. It didn't feel heroic at the time, what they were doing. They were just sailing on a ship and had barely enough food to eat and who knows what else. It didn't feel heroic at the time. But history remembers differently. Because the legacy of their life was one that wanted to be remembered and is told over and over again. I shared this quotation the other night. If I have seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. It's well for us, in a sense, to stand on the shoulders of giants, to glance back that we can glance forward. Isaac Newton said these words, that there is reportedly one of the trees that he saw the apple drop from. However, there are apparently five trees in England, all claiming to be the tree of Isaac Newton. So we're not really sure which tree it was. However, this tree gets at least 20% of the credit. Isaac Newton. But it's not him I want to talk about. I want to take your minds back to a village called North Nibley. It's not on the usual Reformation trail. If you go on a Reformation tour of Europe, most people in a Reformation tour of Europe don't actually make it to England, which I think is a crying shame. Amen. <laughs> like, we had some of the best reformers, but they just stay on continental Europe because it's easier to take one bus and go home. Um, however, if you do go to Europe, make your way to England because there's some great reformers there, John Wycliffe, and there's another one who gets even less press. I mentioned him this morning, and it goes to this village here of North Libby. That's the little village there. The village church is around there. And on the hill, if you're familiar with English geography, this is what they call the Bristol Channel, that strip of water there. Behind that strip is Wales, and there's a huge monument here. It's 33 meters tall. It stands there. It overlooks the motorway if you're driving down south on the M5, the M motorway. And there this monument stands. The reason why it's erected was because of who was born in the village. And the man who was born in the village around about the year 14, I think it's 1494, the man's name was William Tyndale. William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale will grow up. And he would go and attend this university here. This is the city of Oxford. Premier university of the day. I believe at the time of William Tyndale, it had just overtaken Paris as being the most premier university of learning in Europe. And William Tyndale goes there to study at the University of Oxford. He also spent some time at the University of Cambridge. We're not quite exactly sure the dates he was at each one, but he spent time at both. And it was while he was there studying that he ran into this man. His name is Erasmus. Erasmus, his idea was, part of it was, that we needed to study the text in their original language in order to get the full meaning. So in order to understand the Bible properly, we've got to go back and study the Bible, not in the Latin, but study the Bible in the Greek and in the Hebrew to get the full and real meaning of what the Bible has to say. However, at the time, the problem was the 1408 Oxford Commission said that the translation of the Bible was illegal. You were not allowed to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Seems strange. It was okay to be in Latin, but it wasn't okay to be in the English, the French, or the German, or whatever. Well, in England, it would have been just the English. And William Tyndale, didn't, that didn't sit well with him. It didn't sit well with him. He wasn't content to just be a scholar and able to read it for himself. He believed that everyone had the right to read the Bible. Everyone has the right to have it in their own language, that all men are created equal, and therefore we should have equal access to God's Word. And he was sitting in a home one day with some people and discussing, and his views on this came up. 
and the person he was talking with, one of them said, one of them said, we were better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. We're better without the law of God than we are without the Pope's. To which William Tyndale responded some of his famous words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life here many years, I will see that the boy who drives the plow shall know more of God's word than you do. That image of the boy driving the plow. The boy driving the plow would have been an illiterate boy. He would have been an unlearned boy. He would have been a boy who hasn't been to school. He would have been a boy who has not had an education. So that image of the boy driving the plow, the farmhand, the uneducated, the poor, I will see that that boy knows more of the scriptures than you. You know, sometimes I feel like today, it's almost like we're trying to reverse time and go back to the time of that. Well, you've got to be the learned, 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 learned scholar to understand the Bible. Psalms 119 verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Like we should be able to read and understand God's word for ourselves, amen? And yes, there is an importance of, in a sense, education and knowing things in, in detail, but that should never take its understanding away from the common man. And so Tyndale set about to translate the Bible into the language of the people. And as he translated the Bible, it's almost like he had this in mind. The boy who drives the plow. When you read the King James Bible, which is largely, as I mentioned this morning, lifted from Tyndale's Bible. When you read the Bible that he translated, he wrote it in such a way that he was trying to make it easy for the boy who drives the plow to read God's word. I read an article where it said this, reading here. Tyndale deliberately set to write the Bible, which would be accessible to everyone. To make this completely clear, he used what? monosyllables frequently and in such dynamic way that they became a part of the English language for example the word was with God and the word was God monosyllables he was able to kind of take these complex thoughts and put them in such a way monosyllabically <laughs> that everyone could read and understand them in him was life and the life was the light of men Many of his idioms that he used were monosyllabic as well. And the effect of his framing of the English language is profound for us today. Like more of what you and I say to each other is influenced by this man than we actually really know. Like oftentimes when we're pulling for that catchphrase in the English language, we're actually pulling a William Tyndale catchphrase. Like if William Tyndale was alive today, he would have been huge on Twitter. Like, bang, he could just capture it straight away. Like, succinctly. You know, there was a news event in England, you probably saw it on the news. It was terribly sad. 2013, there was a Woolwich terror incident in London. And there was a crazed man walking down the street, and he saw a soldier. He saw this one. He wasn't dressed that way. He saw this soldier, pulled out a, 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 a meat cleaver, and, you know, killed him. It wasn't pretty. While he was doing it, though, the irony is this. Muslim terrorist killing a soldier because the British army was in Afghanistan. And while he's killing him, he was shouting out, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. While he's killing a Christian, as, an Islam, as a Muslim, he's quoting William Tyndale's translation of the Bible. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Probably never knew it. Here's a few of the other phrases that Tyndale translated. Knock and it shall be what? Open unto you. A moment in time. I mean, that's kind of like, we don't even think of that as a biblical term necessarily. It comes from Tyndale. Fashion not yourselves to the world. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given unto you. And what about this one? Judge not that ye be not judged. 
like the favorite Christian phrase of the current day? That comes from Tyndale. The word of God which lives and lasts forever. How about this one? The powers that be. We use that one all the time. Oh, why, why, why didn't that happen? Oh, we tried to get that passed through the church board, but why can't, oh, you know, the powers that be. <laughs> it's just part of our language. It's, part, it's, it's an expression that we use all the time. The salt of the earth, a law to themselves. It came to pass. William Tyndale was a literary genius. A literary genius, underappreciated and largely forgotten. Filthy lucre is another one. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Live, move, and have our being. Lick the dust under the sun, signs of the times, let there be light. He fell flat on his face. The land of the living. I mean, these are like just common. We just think, well, that's English. Pour out one's heart, the flesh pots of Egypt. Go the extra mile, the parting of ways. How about this one? Has it been used repeatedly? Let my people go. Like, he had a way of phrasing the language that's even been used by movements and, 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 and so on since. Let my people go, and an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Today, there exists three copies of Tyndale's Bible, or maybe two, I forget exactly. And one of them sits in the British Museum, which is this building here. You go to the British Museum today, and because Britain's such a great country to go to, it's free for you to enter. Someone say Amen. And you go there, and they've got a room on the left. I think it's called the John, the John Ritland room. It's the, it's the um, antique room or antiquities room. And there they've got all types of things. They've got original Beethoven music. They've got original Beatles lyrics as well, if that's your thing. Um, they've got Alexander Fleming's diagram of penicillin, when the first diagram he ever made of penicillin, it sits in there. But the thing that, we, you know, kind of I go there or other people who may be um, not so much interested in Beethoven or the Beatles is for the Bibles. They've got two of the, the, um, the Alexandra and the, and, the, and the Sinai Vaticanus, I think those are the names. And then they've got William Tyndale's Bible. In 1992, they paid one million pounds for it. In 92. Who knows what it would cost today to buy that one Bible? I don't think they would sell it. But it would take a fee, who knows, like at least ten times more than that to even persuade them to think of selling that book. Such is the value it had on the language that you and I speak today in England and in America. It was said a complete analysis of the authorized, that's the King James Bible, uh, known down generations as the AV or the King James was made in 1998. It shows that Tyndale's word account for 84% of the New Testament and 75.8% of the Old Testament books that he translated. He, Tyndale, is the mainly unrecognized translator of the most influential book of the world. Although the authorized King James Bible is ostentiously the product of a learned committee of churchmen, it is most, mostly cribbed from Tyndale with some reworking of the translation. One man, William Tyndale, left a legacy that he didn't imagine during his life. He wanted to just translate the Bible. Today he's honored, he's got a statue in London, and for most English people that's all they may see of him, the statue in London. It sits outside the, uh, the, the Ministry of Defense, our equivalent of the Pentagon, and there it looks almost like he's there standing looking over the River Thames. And it's, as he looks, in a sense, I don't think the, uh, the people that made the statue were thinking this symbolically when they made it. But as he looks over the River Thames, that was the River Thames where his Bibles would be smuggled into England from Europe. Amen. They weren't able to get printed in Europe. They were, I mean, in England, they were printed rather in Europe. And then from there, they would be smuggled into England and then slowly sent around. In those days, it wasn't just illegal to translate the Bible. Tyndale became such an outlaw, it was illegal. You could be burned or killed just for knowing William Tyndale. If someone said, is William Tyndale your friend? You'd be like, yeah, okay, we'll burn him too. Like you were killed just for him being your friend, let alone reading what he translated. And so it was tough or terrible times to be a Christian or to even know this person, William Tyndale. You know, one of the ironies of history is that part of the reason why King, J King Henry didn't like him is because he refused to sanction the king's divorce from 
I forget which wife it was because he had so many. He refused to sanction the divorce. He says, no, you have no divine right to divorce. Well, the king obviously wanted the approval of one of the leading scholars of the day. Tyndale's like, no, I will not approve this divorce. That's part of the reason. I mean, it's not the whole reason. There's other factors. Obviously, the translation was illegal. But that kind of plays a little bit of the personal side in. Which, you know, one of the ironies of history is this. If, if, if you, Thomas Cramner, you've heard of Thomas Cramner? Like, we, it's irony. You know, we hold him up as being a reformer. He was martyred in Oxford. Yet Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury and was made the Archbishop of Canterbury because he did approve of the king's divorce. Two sides. Let God be the judge, Amen. But William Tyndale said, no, I will not approve of the king's divorce. That played into the fact that he had to be excommunicated or isolated from England, the country of his birth. From 1525, he lived as a fugitive. Went over to Holland, Belgium, Germany, and finally settled there in, it was almost like a modern-day James Bond, in the good sense. Like evading spies, literally a network of spies across Europe to find this man. And he would evade spies here, evade spies there. I mean, he was kind of leading this kind of, we would look back and say it's an exciting life. It didn't feel exciting to him. It didn't feel glorious. It didn't feel joyous. Born in the country, can't go back to his own country. And finally, a man called Henry Phillips befriended him in Antwerp, Belgium. William Tyndale maybe was a bit naive. Maybe he just wanted friends. I don't know. But the man who he befriended, Henry Phillips, was another spy. And after befriending him, not straight away, he would let it go for about three, four, five weeks. Then one day as Henry and William were leaving the house to go around on town somewhere about their business, William thinking this was a man who he could trust in the cause of translating the Bible. As they walked out the house, Henry was in front of him, William was behind, Henry made a nod to his left and his right, and there was two men standing there who took him captive. They took him captive from where he was at Antwerp, and he went over to Belgium. What? I mean, he went over to Vilvorde. While he was a captive, there's an interesting fact of history, the Bishop of London, actually maybe it's the Bishop of Durham, I forget exactly, one of them bought 6,000 copies of Tyndale's Bible. Complete supply. But he bought them at full price. And then he burned them publicly. Burned all these books, 6,000 copies. But the money he paid for the Bibles enabled the publishers to then publish more and better quality of Bibles. So yeah, he got rid of 6,000, but he actually paid for the next batch <laughs> straight away. Amen. You know, there's a kind of a funny side of history too. So bad was it to know William Tyndale, Richard Byfield was a monk who was accused of reading William Tyndale. He was burned to death. He's written about in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And Thomas More, who was the man in England who was really after William Tyndale, when this man was burned, Richard Byfield, like, I don't know what these people were thinking. He was burned, his ashes on the ground, and he went there and he would stamp on his ashes to just like add drama and emphasis that this was a bad man. John Firth was a friend of William Tyndale. He was burned openly and slowly. And history says he was burned so slowly it was almost like he was roasted. Like these men, what was it they were living for? It, was, it wasn't necessarily a doctrine. It was for the right of man to have the Bible. You and I have the Bible today. Some of us don't even bring Bibles to church because we just have it on our phone. It's just an app. We have collection of Bibles at home. And yet... People lived and died for what we have today that's so easy, so accessible, and so just, yeah, I've got it, listen to it, fall asleep to it, lose my Bible, buy a new Bible. Like this was life and death. William Tyndale unfortunately died a lonely death. As I mentioned earlier this morning, he died in Belgium, and while he was a prisoner, um, there was someone who was trying to bring reconciliation between him and the king. And he wanted to go back to England. I mean, he was only 42 years old. He died young, relatively. 
You would want to go back to your country if you're just relatively young. His parents were like, I'm not sure exactly, maybe they were still alive. If they weren't, he probably had brothers and sisters, cousins, friends. You're in a foreign country, foreign language, and there you are, can go back home, eat your favorite food, and, you know, go see your friends. But he says, I refuse to go back to England unless the king authorizes the, authorizes the translation of the Bible, I'll stay here. Later on, the king did authorize the translation of the Bible, but unfortunately, it was after his death. Notice here, on his mind, first translator of the New Testament into English from the Greek born, sorry, 1484, died a martyr in Vilvo, Benjamin, 1536. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. The last words, the last words here, the last words of William Tyndale were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. He was ordered to be strangled before burn because they believed that was a little bit more um, humane for some reason. So they came and strangled him. Only they didn't strangle him properly. Like he kind of may have passed out or whatever, but he wasn't dead. And when they lit the flames, he woke up. And then died they say, a silent and slow death. His last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England, King Henry, King Henry VIII. Within a year of his death, they say, that a Bible was ordered to be printed and put into every parish church in England. He died lonely, Belgium. What's the point of my life? Within a year of his death, Bibles all over England. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the what? The dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. At that point in William Tyndale's life, as it seemed at most points, that's where he died, as it seemed at most points in his life, God was in the shadows. God was in the shadows. And it may be in your life today, God may be, feel like he's in the shadows. Maybe in your educational experience or your work experience, or maybe in your family circumstance and situation, maybe in your marriage relation, it may appear or feel like God is in the shadows. But I want to encourage you and let you know that God is definitely still there, even though he is out of eyesight and in the shadows. You know, sometimes we wonder, how, you know, why do these things happen? Why do things like this happen to relatively, what we would say in a human sense, good people? And you know the whole thing, why do good things happen to bad people? We have to remember that these things don't come from God. Amen. Amen. These things don't come from God. In Matthew 13, verse 28, it's that parable where Jesus, in a sense, is trying to give us just a snippet to understand the complexities of life. And in this parable, which doesn't explain everything in totality, he said, you know, an enemy, when he's looking at the, the field... He said, an enemy has done this. The servant said, will you then that we go and gather them up? But he left those words there just to kind of give us a snapshot into why sometimes these things happen as they do in their lives and in our life. The blame doesn't lie at the feet of Jesus. It says an enemy has what done this. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, where? In high places. We're born on a battlefield, so to speak. A controversy between good and evil. And living for God, trying to do what's right, doesn't always give us accolade and applause. We're living in a society today where people don't know how to take criticism. Where people don't know how to take feedback that's not positive. We live in a world today where it's all about affirmation and affirmation and affirmation. These reformers had to live in a time when they weren't getting constant affirmation. They had to know for sure why they were doing what they were doing. And in our lives today, in your purpose, your mission, your ministry, you need to know why you're doing what you're doing, otherwise you'll get dislodged by what people say. 
If you work for the church, you don't always get applause. If you're volunteering in church in some capacity as elder or leader or deacon or whatever, you don't always get pats on the back. You don't always get plaques at the front and people appreciate your years of service. No, 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 no. You have to know why you do what you do to stay on track and to stay on purpose. I want to take you to the south of France. At the end of August, we finished up our summer program of summer camps, and we still had three more episodes of Lineage to film before the filming for the year was done. It was kind of an exhaustive schedule fit in filming in around uh, everything else that was going on. And so we flew down to the south of France on EasyJet. If you've been to Europe and you know what EasyJet is, it's kind of like flying on a Greyhound. <laughs> kind of. About the same. Fly down there to the south of France, EasyJet, there was a crew of us, we get down there. And you know, sometimes things don't always go your way. We land there in the south of France, someone's suitcase, which are two people's luggage in, doesn't arrive. But we're only down there for a day and a half before we fly home. There's no time for the luggage actually to come because the next flight on the airline came in in two days' time. So this guy's wearing the same clothes for the next three days. The problem was the tripod was in that suitcase. You can't film three days with no tripod. Anyway, the Lord worked today. Well, we got a tripod from the conference office across town. Da, 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 da. We drove, first of all, to the Waldensian Valleys, and then to this place in the south of France. And why do we go? I mean, why do we like wake up at three in the morning and then we film from four in the morning till three and then we drove for five hours? We get to her house just before sunset, driving like crazy people across Europe. The reason we went there and in a sense lost our sleep, which we're thinking we're sacrificing, but in the grand scheme of things, we're not sacrificing at all. We went there because of the story that inspired us of the lady who was there. The lady here, this house, this is Clive Coutet, in case you guys don't know. He's the brains behind it all. The lady, her name was Marie Durand. She's not really that well known as a reformer. She's not really famous, per se. Her brother was called Pierre, sorry it's cut off, Pierre Durand. And we went there because she did something quite remarkable. They held worship services in her home when worship services were illegal. And they were called the Assemblies of the Desert in French. The Assemblies of the Desert. Her parents were both caught for hosting and going to these assemblies in the desert. They were caught, sent to prison, and died in prison. She still had her brother, though, Pierre. Pierre was preaching at some of these underground church services. Pierre was sent to prison, caught, sent to prison, and sentenced to death. She's now 18 years old, left on her own. She marries a man called Matthew. Marries him at the age of 19. Three months after her wedding, three months after her wedding, He's captured, sent to prison, and spends 20 years in prison. And about two months after that, Marie Durand, at the age of 19, was captured and sent to prison as well. The song said, yet the scaffold what? Sways the future. And behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow watching over his own. But I bet you, Marie Durand, as her parents are captured, sent to prison, die, as her brother's captured, sent to prison, sentenced to death, as her husband of three months is captured, sent to prison, she really didn't feel too close or God was right there. In times like that, you've got to know why you do what you do or the circumstances of life will dislodge you. It's at times like this, in the time of peace and prosperity, when we should solidify ourselves into what we believe and who we are. 
It was when Daniel was in Jerusalem that he purposed in his heart. When he got to Babylon was when he just executed what was already inside his heart. The word purpose means he determined. He decided before he gets to Babylon, he knows what he's going to do. He didn't get there and say, well, I don't know, let's have a discussion, let's see what we'll, no, no, no. He already had decided and knew where he would stand. It wasn't a debate, it wasn't a question. The decision had been made. God has blessed us now as a church with opportunities to come to church like this or to go to youth conferences or to go to places where we can grow and solidify our understanding of God's word and, and shape our identity now that when we have to make a stand in an environment not so, you know, cozy, that our identity is sure. Marie Durand was taken to this building here. The infamous Tour du Constance. Not this one, this one. This building here is constituted of two rooms. There's a floor here. Well, you see the window there and you see the window there. So I guess three. There's a ground floor, first floor, second floor. She was taken there and locked in this room at the age of 19. The room had no windows. The only light that would come in was through a six-foot, that one-meter diameter, circular hole in the ceiling. The food came up through a hole in the floor. And there she is, food coming up through a hole in the floor. Most likely it was just loaves of bread thrown up there. Probably not much else. Food comes up through the hole. Air through the ceiling, but also through the ceiling would come the snow would come the rain, in the summer humid, in the winter freezing cold. Why? Because her brother was a pastor. Today, this is the room here. It looks quite, you know, it looks quite, quite nice, you would even say. The lighting effect and the way the photographer took the picture, ah, it's quite a pretty building to take a picture of. Marie Durand was in this room, though, was in this room. For not one year, not two years, not three years, not ten years. Not one decade, not two decades, not three decades. She was in this room, in the room, where they would do everything in the room. She was in this room for 38 years. 38. Locked up, it was a women's prison. Locked up there with other women. And there they believe she is the one that with a stone scratched around the lid, the refuse lid, the words in old French, registe, which in modern French would be resiste, which in English would be resist. Like all she had to do to get released was to say two words, I recant. I mean, surely that thought crossed her mind after she's been in prison for 22 years. Like 30, 30 years in prison, three decades. Some of us aren't even that old. Three decades. You think, ah, is this worth it? And where is God at this moment? He's standing in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. The problem is, at times like that, the shadows are very dark and the shadows are very long. Resiste. Finally, after being in prison for 38 years, she came in at 19. She hasn't just served another 19 years. She served double her life in prison. 38 years. After being in prison for 38 years, and she was the leader in prison, like she was one, seen as one of the leaders amongst the women there. She would write constant letters to the, um, to the, you know, the, 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 um, the officials in the town, trying to get better conditions for the ladies, maybe blankets, maybe Bibles. 
She would write constant letters. And she was seen as the leader there in the prison. And they believe because of the role that she played amongst the other ladies that she's the one that wrote those words on the lid, resiste, resiste, resist. And as I was standing there in that prison, I was wondering, would my resolve, would my conviction, would my beliefs, would they last almost four decades in a cold, dark stone room? It's one thing to be burned quickly at the stake. It's another thing to just be in prison for decade after decade after decade. People have forgotten about you. You have got no family outside. No one's writing letters to you. No one's visiting you. I believe their stories, their lives, for whatever reason, God allowed it to happen to them. He weighed it up in the balance and knew that she could handle it. And maybe after weighing it up in the balance, he knew that when the story of her would be told in centuries later, it would encourage people like you and I. That maybe when we find ourselves in a similar situation, it too would motivate us. It was really difficult for Satan to stamp out the church. You're familiar with that quotation where it says, the blood of Christians is what? The seed of the gospel. The blood of Christians is the seed of the gospel. Here it says, Do you not see that the Christian thrown to the wild beast, that they may recount to the Lord? Do not allow themselves to be beaten. Do, not, do you not see that the more they are punished, the more in what? The more in numbers they increase. The testimony of them dying was such that people would give their lives to Jesus because of what they saw. There were certain places in Germany where in the Dark Ages or the medieval times where they started doing the executions at night. Because by doing them in the daytime, it was counterproductive. We kill one and ten more join the cause. So instead of doing it in your start, let's do them publicly. Bring the whole town and watch. Look, this is what we do to you if you're a Christian. And people join the church. I remember reading in, in, in Foxes that they started in one place doing them at night. In, they were executing in secret. Because the impact of a martyr dying with a song on their lips and a prayer on their heart, with eyes of love for the people killing them, they just, they couldn't deal with that. John chapter 12, it says, Verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat falls to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth what? Now Jesus here in this verse was talking about himself. This is a pro prophecy Jesus was, uh, I mean a verse Jesus was saying, about what would happen in about a few days' time in his own life. He says, I'm going to die, and when I die, I'll bring forth much fruit. But the lesson, I believe, applies for us today, that when we live a life for Jesus, and we live a life, and if, for whatever reason, we were called to suffer, or to suffer a martyr's death, may the fragrance of our life be sweet, and may it bring forth much fruit. May we have the faith of Job who said, though he slay me, yet will I what? Trust yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Marie Durand, she's going to be in lineage series. She probably had no idea that a group of five Brits would fly to south of France and film an episode on her life. But we put her in there for the simple fact that she's not famous. You know, we've got episodes on Luther, Knox, Tyndale. They're famous. We've got episodes on Cramner, Latimer. But the reality is most of the people who died in the Dark Ages were nobodies. We don't even know their names. People that people really don't know. So we put her in there. Because the lives that you and I live, however insignificant, however insignificant, can bring fruit as well. This is another place, actually. Interesting. This is in Scotland. Here. If you've ever been to Scotland, go here. It's a beautiful place. It's St. Andrews. St. Andrews today is famous because um, it's a town where William met Kate. Prince William, I have you know. 
met Kate, but her name is Catherine. That's where he met her. It's also the home of golf. Like, the course there is 600 years old. However, George Wishart was finally captured. People don't really know George Wishart, but they know John Knox. George Wishart was John Knox's teacher. He only lived to be 33. 33. He only preached in Scotland for two years. Two years preaching in Scotland. Captured at the age of 33. Finally, after Cardinal Beaton had literally traced him around the whole country. Dundee, Aberdeen, Ayr, Creef, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Finally, Cardinal Beaton with 500 men captured George Wishart. And he took him there to Scotland. I mean, to St. Andrews. And just outside St. Andrew's Castle, which is just in ruins today, it stand, sits on the coast, it's a beautiful location. Just outside there, you've got these initials on the ground, GW. Not for George Washington, but for George Wishart. And it's on that spot where he died and gave his life. 33. Gave his life. John Knox, though, finding and knowing of his teacher's death, you know, when, when George Wishart was captured, John Knox wanted to go with him, kind of like a Jerome and Huss situation. He's like, oh, I'm going to come too. And George Wishart's, wor Wishart's words, almost noble, were, it's okay. You stay home. He said, one is sufficient for sacrifice. George Wishart went and he told John Knox to stay. Don't chase after me. George Wishart died. John Knox, though, at the time, was just kind of like this young man who followed George Wishart around, incidentally carrying a two-handed sword to be his protector where he went. After George Wishart's death, though, John Knox said, I will take up the mantle, and we know him famously for saying those words, give me Scotland or I die. The seed of John Knox in many ways goes back to the man George Wishart that very few people Christians even know who he is. And yet his short life of 33 years, two years of preaching, his ministry had a legacy much longer than him. We heard of John, we've heard of John Knox, but really, George Wishart was the forerunner, so to speak, almost like the John the Baptist before. His life was short, but it was still a significant life. You and I, we live lives today. Let us remember we don't live a life in a vacuum. We don't live a life isolated from others. And let us remember that whatever experience that we're going through in our lives, however bad it may seem, that we serve a God who watches over his children. We've got all types of experiences in this hall today. All types of personal life situations where sometimes as we leave this place, as we leave the Sabbath hours, we wonder where is God in those moments. I'm sure William Tyndale wondered that while he was locked in prison in Vilvoorde, Belgium. I'm sure Marie Durand that crossed her mind more than once while she was locked up for 38 years in a stone cold room. And yet we have the promise that the, uh, his eye is on the sparrow. And as the song says, I know he watches over you. God watches over his children. And let us be encouraged that whatever life God calls us to live, it's a life that if we live for him, that will bear fruit. That like Jesus said, if I die, I bring forth much fruit. I pray that in your life, that whatever sacrifices, however big they may seem to you, however hard they may seem to you, that as we go through them, know that there's fruit of them in our life and in the lives of other people as well. And I read through the last verse of that song. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet his truth alone is strong. Though her her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown. 
whatever life you're living today, if it feels like it's on a scaffold, know that that scaffold sways the future. Let that scaffold sway the future. And remember that behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadows, keeping watch over his own. May we be encouraged. The legacy of the Reformation is not over no matter what piece of paper gets signed by who or knows who. Because the legacy of the Reformation lives on in the life and death of many of those who went before us. And the scaffold of their lives truly does sway the day in which we live, providing us with freedom and opportunity and inspiration as we share God's word. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for the privilege we have to look back and be encouraged through these episodes of spiritual history. Romans 15 verse 4 says that whatever things written before, aforetime, have been written for our learning, that through patience and comfort in the scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, we thank you for the stories of the past that inspire us. May they motivate us, Lord, to live lives of consecration and dedication to you today. Lord, I pray that the Reformation may not be over and that here on the campus of Loma Linda University, that the spirit of the Reformation may live strong and that it may be evident in the lives of those here present, that our lives may bear testimony of the truths you have entrusted to us that we may live by the conviction of our conscience, come what may. And whatever experience we go to, Lord, may we always remember that you are near, even if you're standing in the dim of the shadows. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.